Hello and welcome to Post Game Content. My name is Not Michael. I'm joined by my host, Not Max. How you doing, Not Max? I guess all along I knew I wasn't Max, but <laughs> hearing it out loud makes makes it hurt that much more. It's tough, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you were like relieved to hear you weren't Michael, but hearing I'm not Max, I mean, that's just what we all strive to be. So better luck next time, I guess. Your lack of a mustache didn't tip you off at all? I mean, I have a mustache, but it's just blended in like a horribly patchy goatee slash I don't oh, know stop. what I have. <laughs> I don't know. You can get the connecty bit. I can never get the connecty bit. It's just years of laziness. Well, I want to <laughs> say it was persistence. This is laziness. There you go. Thanks, COVID. <laughs> Michael, we are officially, I mean, we're right on the brink of an Elden Ring release, which is, I mean, a hype is through the roof at the moment. It's been a running through line through all of our episodes at this point, just how excited you and I are, are about this game. So I have to ask an entirely unrelated question. Uh, what have you been playing this week? <laughs> Um, I have distanced myself from Souls for a little bit, uh, mm. mostly because I was trying to Platinum 3 before Elden Ring came out, and then the horrible issue of, you know, the online going down, and a lot of the things you need to do are covenant-based, which require PvP, etc. Right. Um, or, you know, 40,000 playthroughs, and I'm not doing, you know, <laughs> 15, 16 playthroughs to get a vertebrae shackle every time. So yeah. that being said, I took a break from that. I have, um, in the since we recorded last one, I played through the game we're going to be talking about today. Um, I have been uh, playing Horizon Forbidden West, <coughs> um, which is good. I have I have some mixed emotions about it thus far. Um, but uh, we can we can talk about that another day. Uh, yeah, <laughs> hit us up in the Discord. We'll talk about it there. Um, and I, other than that, the hype for Elden Ring. Really, I haven't been playing anything else since um, Horizon came out. That's just where a hundred percent of my focus is going to be. I thought realistically I was going to be able to like power through it and beat it before Elden Ring, but I'm fairly confident that the way I play games, there's probably over 100 hours of content in this game. It's absolutely massive. You tend to be a bit of a completionist. Sometimes. It depends on the yeah. game. I, I just, like... I, I'm on the, I operate on this brink where it's like, yes, it absolutely was time for the prices of video games to go up, just the way the, you know, the culture is, the economy is, and mm -hmm. uh, especially with all the crap that video game developers have to go through nowadays, they deserve better. So if raising the price of games is that is uh what that takes then sure but the other half of me is if i'm gonna pay 70 dollars for a game i want to milk that i want to get the <laughs> most or the smallest cents per hour i can get out of that game and as long as i still enjoy it you know i, I only 100 percent games that i enjoy i mean i've only ever platinumed three games in my life so it's not too bad i don't think i realized that yeah i, I never really was much of a completionist until like the ability to it, it usually just coincides with how much of the enjoyment I'll get out of the game, which is a mm -hmm. good point. I think I'll be talking about here in a little bit when we get into our today's topic. But if the game itself offers enjoyment in that 100 percent completion, I'm going to accomplish that. So I know exactly where you come where you're coming from. 
Um, I have spent this week trying to platinum Sifu, which is a, a third-person beat-em-up game that's incredibly difficult for how short it is. Um, but I'm I'm this close. I'm like three achievements away from platinuming it, and I I want to get that under my belt before Elden Ring comes out. I am blown away. I just I can't. <clears throat> I don't know. You're you're just better at those. Uh... <laughs> it's because I have, like, I've yet to master that. It's it's just because I I I like learning through repetition. Um, I memorized all the lyrics to Bare Naked Ladies one week when I was a kid just by like hitting that like I had the CD so I just hit the over but like the restart button over and over again just learning it verse by verse and this scratches a lot of that same itch this kind of game just restarting levels over and over again until you can do them perfectly <laughs> that's a interesting uh, I need to make it clear that when I compare something to the bare naked ladies I am paying it a huge compliment yeah that's fair <laughs> okay <laughs> Well, yeah, I have. I don't have the balls to try Sifu yet. I've heard it's not as hard as Sekiro is, but it's got that same type of like core rhythm mechanic that you have to master. Yeah, for sure. It's a lot of parrying, and yeah. if that's not your bag, then it's probably not going to be enjoyable. Yeah. Well, but Michael, we're not here to talk about parrying. We're <laughs> here to talk about God of War, God of War Four, God of Four, God of Four. The, uh, the reboot of the God of War series for the PS4 that was released in 2018. And I think to talk about this game, um, I think it's probably important to talk about what kind of preconceived notions that we had about God of War as a series coming into this game. Because um, we've talked about it a little bit before, and neither of us had particularly, like, positive experiences with the series coming into this so like when you were coming into this when you hear the phrase god of war what came to mind do you mean whenever it launched or whenever i started playing because there were two different things i think because i had mm -hmm. this my preconceived notions about god of war when the game launched and then i had whenever i finally got around to playing it when it released on pc a couple months back where i had you know, just a metric shitload of people who just tell, told me how good it was mm -hmm. and how I could change my expectations based off of that. So what, sure. which one do you, do you mean? I mean, when you're thinking about like, you know, the first three games. Okay. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me. I have a bit of a cough today. So if I apologize, I'll try not to make that too, too often. But, um, the, <laughs> looking back at the first three games i had this opinion of it a a a raw brutal dumb boy go unga bunga with a bunch of knives <laughs> and it just was it didn't appeal to me at all it's a hack and slash and it just didn't that that didn't cut it for me i tried the original god of war god of war one and everyone mm. was like oh two's the best one but i was i was one of those people that was like i'm not playing 15 to 20 hours of a game just to get to a good part. The same reason I don't play right. MMOs. So <laughs> it's <laughs> it, times 10 for those. But that being said, that was kind of my the preconceived notion was that they're just bland. The story's fine, but it's the main core 
attraction to those games is the you know the hack and slash appeal yeah so. it, it was a spectacle fighter it was one of those like you know you're in it for the big gory like quick time events yeah um and yeah i i completely came into it with the same sort of idea that you did um i thought kratos was a dummy i thought the whole thing was faintly ridiculous and took itself way too seriously um and like so when they announced that they were rebooting God of War, I think I had the same sort of idea that everybody else did, where it was like, oh, okay, this is God of War. We have like a La- Last of Us kind of camera angle. <laughs> probably still going to be pretty stupid. <laughs> just stupid from another perspective. <laughs> it's just stupid from lower down is all we're going to do here. Um, and I went into it pretty blind my first time through and had a radically different experience with it um almost from the start like right off the start menu um old god of war games always did this huge like kind of build up where there was like you know the the character of gaia who's like a, a titan would do this big like introduction and like now hear the tale of kratos <laughs> and all that kind of shit <laughs> There's none of that in this game. It's just a very quiet scene of Kratos chopping down a tree, which is the most at rest we've ever seen this guy. Yes. <laughs> um, and I thought that was a really interesting... Like, the game sort of starts as it means to go on. Um, one of the really fascinating things is that, is that there's no cuts in this at all. You know, you never shift in perspective... The camera always sort of follows around and it's shot as like one big take, um, which is really cool. Um, it, it, it just they really committed to this this um, this new change in perspective. So rather than giving a whole bunch of context and like setting up a big story, we just have a very quiet scene and a very kind of relatable scene of a funeral to start us off. Um, and we're introduced to our main characters of Kratos and Atreus, his son, uh, who at the beginning is a whiny little shit, and then he'll get better, and then he'll get way worse, and then he'll kind of get better <laughs> towards the end. I love this opening scene a lot. Um, and I guess as we go on, I'll probably harp on this again. Um, but I mean, obviously, in the you know the early days of the PlayStation Two, you know, when God of War came out, and then into the PlayStation Three, I think that the the desire for games um, was very much on that hack and slash. Look how much you can do on the screen at once. Look how flashy it can be with all the colors. You know, that's why people were still playing those games. And then mm-hmm. as it transitioned into like the PlayStation Three with Heavenly Sword. And then God of War 3, you know, kind of kind of captured this a little bit. It was still a lot about the spectacle, but it transitions into this, oh, my God, like, it was like the art community reached out and was like, hey, guys, we have a new way. <laughs> we have a new way to tell stories. We have a new way to put things into a perspective, to really put people in, you know, just like a movie, put people into the shoes of the main characters. And God of War... This game, especially in the starting scene here, is the perfect example of why 
gaming has never been better. I'm not saying there's not been good stories in other games, obviously, in the past. Like, that's clearly the case. They've, sure, they've, yeah. But, like, the way that they frame this in a, a movie, obviously, if you think about it, how emotionally attached you get to movie characters and whatnot. I mean, even Lord of the Rings, this epic saga, they're telling us a story that we're all so emotionally attached to over 20 years in the course of nine hours. You know, and in a movie, it's an mm-hmm. hour and a half. And they take that, the ability to tell the story and the put put this scene together that tells you so much. And even, you know, if you know anything about God of War, it's just the fact that Kratos killed all the gods of Greece because he had a vendetta and he was pissed off. That's, everyone knows that. That's, if you even know what video games are, you know that. Yeah. So walking in with just that little bit of knowledge, which just is about as much as I had, Mm. they did such a good job of this opening scene painting emotion and pain and introducing a new character in just like the first five minutes and setting up their relationship between them that foreshadows the rest of the entire game. So I, I just don't have enough good things to say about this intro scene. It was, it was phenomenally done. And there's a did, lot of really small moments in, in this intro scene that I think do a good job of setting up Kratos as you know, a distant father, but a father. Um, you know, when they finally like light the the fire on uh, the funeral pyre, and and Atreus grabs his mother's knife in like a last minute, like I want to have something of her kind of moment, and burns his hand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Kratos packs up a little bit of snow, hands it to his son, and says, "Squeeze." And it like it, it's a really small thing. Kratos was not a character that was capable of that in any of the games beforehand, who couldn't process a thought more complex than, like, that thing is in my way, kill it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, like, I, it, I, <coughs> I think that, especially at the beginning of this game, whenever they they use... I mean, literally everything around them. They use the, you know, the house. They use the the funeral pyre. They use even the intros to battle and things like that all in the vein of setting up the relationship between Kratos and Atreus. And obviously that's what this game is about is just expounding on that relationship, regardless of which portion of the game you're in. That's what this entire game is about. So buckle up because it's about to get emotional, (laughs) emotional damage. Guess, guess what dick bags you're going to feel things. (laughs) Yeah. Which is again, not what I thought was going to happen whenever I started playing God of war. So, Mm I I I expected to walk into this game with everything I heard about it to have a good story with a hack and slash gameplay, but it was very much strategic combat, and I loved that. You know, button combos and just really <laughs> very meticulous battles. Like none of the battles were particularly hard outside of the Valkyries, mm. but. Man, were they meticulous. So anyway, we can uh, we can move on. Well, yeah, we'll 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 move on. We'll come back to that. Michael, I want to talk about the combat now that we're in the tutorial area. Uh, oh, neat. OK. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, OK, so we, we go on a hunting expedition with our son and this is where we inter- like get introduced to a lot of the main uh, elements of gameplay. You know, we start to get our feet wet a little bit and combat is the first one. Um I like that you describe the combat as strategic because that's how I felt about it. You know, a big part of it is that I felt almost every fight was kind of a puzzle in terms of, 
um, prioritizing targets, you know, taking them out first and, and sort of grouping areas and doing a little bit of crowd control. Um, I really liked it. And uh, can we just give it up for a minute for how fucking good the Leviathan Axe feels for a video game weapon? Oh my gosh. Honestly, I mean, if we're if we ever do a ranking system for like best video game weapons, that mm. will probably make the top 10. Like it, it would just, have to. It just fe- it feels so good. There's a satisfying like crunch when it hits enemies. There's a, the throw mm. and pullback, the the whole Thor's hammer bit. Like it just is it's fantastic. Like I I loved that about this. And I I I'm sure it was intentional, but I couldn't help but think like you're going into like this Norse mythology and then you have an axe that you can throw and recall it and mm. only you can recall it. And I was like, mm, like that's a pretty blatant like <laughs> Thor's hammer thing that they did. But I don't mm. know. I just thought that was Well, then cool. they tie it in with the uh, the narrative because right. uh, Brock and Sindri were the ones who made Mjolnir uh, Thor's hammer as well as, as the Leviathan axe. I love those guys. They're great. <laughs> um that that whole intro scene though like not the not the funeral but when you're going through the fighting tutorial the whole mm. tutorial opening all the way from whenever you're going out to whatever you do uh, to chase the deer i love that he's like we're going to hunt right now like we're going to get our mind off this you need to keep your skills sharp you need to be prepared for anything and mm. it was like it was such a subtle lesson i don't even think they touched on it but i knew just playing as kratos in that moment, just the limited time I had with him, the lesson he was trying to teach his son was it doesn't matter what emotions you're feeling, whether it's anger or pain or sadness or even crippling depression, like you're probably feeling at this moment, you have to get up and you have to keep going. And like that was completely unspoken throughout that entire segment. And then it goes into like the, a lot of games have this ability to, or I should say the inability to present this in a way like God of War does, but teaching you how to play the game and it be completely just <laughs> obvious and it's like, okay, I get it. But this was so, they had you distracted by the narrative and the relationship and the environment because it was gorgeous. But mm-hmm. I mean, I, I love games that can take an opening in sequence where it's teaching you how to play and it doesn't feel like you're walking through a tutorial. And this game did that really well. Yeah, and I love that they kind of very gradually add in all the different elements. Um, You know, it's not until a good chunk into the game where everything really opens up and you really see, like, oh, this is what the whole game sort of is. Um, And I I do want to talk about that moment. But you're right. One of the things that I think makes the writing so good in this game is how much goes unsaid and doesn't need to be said. It's conveyed in other ways. it, the the intro to this, when you're going out hunting for the first time, you know, Kratos says something like, we're going hunting for deer. And Atreus is like, okay, what direction? In the direction of deer. Like, fuck you. I'm not helping. <laughs> this is about you learning how to do this on your own. Like, you get a sense of that dynamic really, really quickly. Um, and I think through the first, like, third of this game, I think you can divvy it up into acts. In the first act, a lot of it is going to be about... Atreus trying to prove himself to his father. Um, yeah. So the tutorial area, we get a little bit of the combat. Um, I think the combat overall is great. There's a couple of 
sort of weird um, kind of considerations for, for the camera angle, like the threat ring that's behind you, which I think is clunky, but I, it never really bothered me in the way that it seemed to stick with a, a couple of, of reviewers. Um, no, I I thought it was a way of complimenting because the threat the threat piece only popped up whenever Treyas had called out had called out an enemy. Hey, father behind you, and I mm-hmm. thought it was a great way to put an indicator on the screen, letting you know that it, you know if you have your volume down or if you have accessibility issues. You know, because some people you know can't hear. You know, right? Uh, so having those types of things in the game, I think, is of critical importance to make sure everyone can enjoy it. So honestly, if you're complaining about a threat ring behind the character, I don't know what to tell you. Like, not you <laughs> as a per like, and not criticizing anyone out there, but there are reasons that they have those things in the game. So <clears throat> that's a good point. That's definitely a good point. Now, should so did you have the ability to change those things? Maybe. But that being said, I, I liked it. The only thing I would say about the combat early game, and I know this is a complaint that I had expressed to you, is I felt early honestly for probably the first quarter of the game maybe even a little more the combat's pretty samey like it it's very Mm. you don't have a lot of moves yet you don't have a lot of weapon choices or uh, really it's you have i can hit you softly and i can hit you hard or i can have my son shoot an arrow at you like those are the three options that's Um, what you got yeah and again it's complemented by the fact that like your axe is just incredibly dope to use it's very satisfying (laughs) but at the same time it was a grape it went away like Mm -hmm. in folds it went away um but it did take a little while to get that feeling to go so for sure yeah and i think maybe it takes a long time for your i think you're absolutely right it takes too long for your combat options to sort of expand Mm -hmm. um I can understand wanting players to get a full grasp of the fundamentals before really branching things out, but give me something, you know, other than the standard light attack, heavy attack block. Yeah. I think that's fair. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it was cool. I I liked it. And I liked, I liked the spectacle uh, in the, the menu of all the different moves. I liked how like detailed Mm -hmm. the skill trees and I loved how, intricate and you could choose even though it literally made no difference you could choose what color your shield was and just you just get to deck out your guy and i i really I like that, that too <clears throat> so. yeah i don't remember that being in the re- original release i think that was something that was either patched in or something specific to the pc version oh um, i didn't know that. changing the shield and stuff yeah that's cool yeah i mean it was I, obviously like when we're talking about the game customization options are neither here nor there but if you look at a lot of like you know, even The Last of Us 1 and 2, you didn't have that type of customization. You know, in mm-hmm. Dead Space, you had the ability to change your armor, but it was based off an upgrade. It wasn't like, hey, this is better with these stats. It was just, you know, popular third-person games don't typically allow you to do the types of things that this does. Um, at least in in the level of granularity that this does, where they all have a specific stat boost. Now, Horizon does something similar, but point being the spectacle of it was what really impressed me because a lot of times it is very generic looking and this was you felt cool you felt up close and it felt like even though it literally kratos didn't give a shit if he was naked or not like he just, he didn't <laughs> care but it, <clears throat> it it just added a lot to the the they were trying to 
make you connect and feel like you were playing Kratos or you were Kratos with all the emotion that was conveyed in this game. And I think that just added another layer of that connection. Agreed. Yeah. I think that's a really good point is that there's a level of customization here, um, which was not apparent in the original like trilogy of games. You know, there's some light RPG elements. We can have a conversation later about how much those actually impact gameplay. (laughs) But you do get a sense of like, you know, okay, I find myself using runic runic attacks a lot. There are, you know, there there are armor sets and character builds that that complement that. Um, That's really interesting. I, I, I appreciate that. And you're right. I think that does start to break down that wall a little bit between you and the character. Yeah, for sure. And what I liked about this game, too, and, you know, because a lot of the games have skill trees, but it's like when you unlock your skill trees, it's here's everything that you can do now. You can do any of these things at any given time. Just pop them off. God of War Mm. has the the skill tree, but it's it's broken up into two sections. You have the skills that you can do at all times, and then you have the skills that you just have to pick and choose that you have the ability to do now based off what's embedded in your weapon and whatnot. And it's not like, okay, I have access to 75% of them. It's like, no, you get two, maybe three (laughs) of the 50 that are available. So Mm -hmm. pick and choose what suits your fancy. And so, like you said, if it's runic, if it's strength, if it's just stunned, whatever it was that you really were in tune with, the game just has such a, a broad spectrum of customization that just is can suit literally any type of player. And I, I love that about it. Yeah. 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 It definitely, it, it gives you a lot of options for what is a fairly limited combat system at the beginning. You can tweak it in a lot of different ways that, that make it more appealing to you. Hmm. So we fight our way through this tutorial area. We have a, a, classic kind of this is where i think god of war sort of shows its roots a little bit with the big old troll boss fight at the end here (laughs) yeah that shit's pretty fun we uh we drop a big rock on its face um can can we go home can i say something about this battle go on mainly i just i want to know i i have trouble admitting this because um i died on this boss like one or two times but mainly it was because I, at this point in the game, had no idea how to use Atreus. Like, I knew how to get him to shoot arrows. But right. it was like, I, I was expecting the, his uses to be more deliberate than what they were in the beginning. So I was like, you just is there... spam that shit, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know I could just be like, oh, hey, I'm he's charging at me. Like, spam it three times and get stunned or something like that. It was like... I've so I died a few times before I really had to figure it out. So I I wish there had been like this menu, and if there was, I must have just skipped it. And they had been like, "Hey, here's what Atreus does. Here's how he's doing." And but at the same time, when I go back to the story and that interconnection between Kratos and the character, mm-hmm. this was him teaching Atreus what he needed to do. So he was like, "You stay up there and you fire arrows, but you need to watch me." And figure out when I need it. So the ability mm-hmm. to, or I guess the, the inability to know exactly what you were supposed to do, and learning how to use that over time without any direct explanation, was awesome. Because when you team that with the fact that throughout the game he's consistently asking his father, "Hey, did I do okay? Hey, how did I do? What did you think about that?" And right. Kratos never really gives him a great answer other than "You're doing fine," or "You're improving," or "That was terrible. You need to do better." 
Like, mm-hmm. I love that they didn't do that in the beginning because it made me feel like we grew together, like Kratos and Atreus. So Yeah. And I think there's a really good narrative cohesion between um, the way that at the beginning of the story, you you rely much more on Kratos than you do on Atreus. And by the end of it, it's pretty evenly split where you can count on Atreus to take out a lot of like minor mobs for you, um, especially when you get a chain lightning effect for for his arrows and you can just like wipe off half a couple like a couple of dudes that you just don't even have to worry about. Like by the time Kratos runs over to him, they're gone already. Oh, um, yeah. I don't know how many times there were. Uh, it was one of the realm tears on top of one of like the the towers in mm. Midgar, central Midgar. Yeah. But it had the two like level eight wolves that came out of it. Those things yeah. beat the ass off of me <laughs> until I figured out how to really effectively use Atreus. So, because he could just keep them distracted while I was either throwing something or doing like a, you know, the some attack that threw some ice up, like a, mm-hmm. at them from a distance, because those things just kill you in one hit. It's ridiculous, but yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it, you're right. It just it opens up a lot of options, and it's it's really interesting to as how the as the game progresses to figure out that dichotomy between the two, like as father and son, not just as like player and player. This isn't a mm-hmm. Chris Redfield and Sheva situation. He's actually useful. <laughs> so, <laughs> but we won't talk about that anymore. I thought you were going to say Leon and Ashley. I mean, even she was useful because you got to like, you know, she would throw lamps or something at you, or at least you could look up her skirt whenever she was being carried away. Sheva wasn't True. useful at all. <laughs> and you're not allowed to do that with a trace because you go to jail. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So you fight the big troll is what I'm saying. Um, you fight the big troll, and then we get to the battle with the stranger when you come back home. And this was, I know we typically save this moment for later on, but this was my all-in moment. This is where a lot of things about this game start to come together, and it starts to flex its muscles, both in terms of spectacle and in terms of narrative and writing. Um you you get a knock on the door from this beardy, coked-out-looking dude, and the first words he says to you are, I thought you'd be bigger. Long way from home, aren't you? I just have to give it up to the writers for what a good line of dialogue this is. Because the first time through, there's an understanding that, like, oh, shit, this guy somehow knows that Kratos is Greek. He's from a different world, and somehow he's sussed him out. Um, Because he says all this stuff about, like, you know, your kind's supposed to be more civilized than we are, so much more advanced. Mm -hmm. And it's not until your second playthrough and hearing those words again when you go, oh, my God, this guy thinks Kratos is a giant. That's the whole reason he was sent here. Um and so the whole crack about thought you'd be bigger oh and all God, that makes even, so much more sense. I didn't even realize that. Wow. Yeah. Shit. Like, the Damn. only reason Baldur was sent here is that <laughs> Odin was like, there's a giant living in this hut. Go kill them. Hmm. Wow. Man, that's that's great. Wow. Isn't that good? Yeah, I didn't. I had no idea. Like, that's oh, that's really cool. I've only played the is, game once for anyone... You know, who's out there listening. 
Mm-hmm. No, but it's, it's one of those things that like you wouldn't catch. And I think it is such a good piece of writing. Um, and my like definitive all in moment is when Balder snaps and punches you over your own house. Yeah, for sure. I can't say enough good things about this fight. I, I legitimately think it's great. Um, we get a sense of the scale that feels a lot like the old God of, God of War games, although there's more narrative weight behind it because Kratos actually has something to lose. Um, you know, you get a chance to try out some of the more, the combat mechanics you've been learning, but in a more challenging sort of one-on-one sort of fight where you can start to do parries and, and shield deflects and things like that. Um, and it sets up how, like, dangerous this world is. I... I if we're talking about the introductions as a whole, this capstone is just, it, it is such a perfect way to like get excited about what's to come. I think. Yeah. And it kind of rounds out, like, I think it gives all the people who love God of war for what it was. And obviously mm. they love this too, but this gave them that satisfaction of having like, Hey, here's your first, you know, boss. Cause it wasn't overly difficult, but it, no. it definitely, framed what was to come like you said um my all-in moment didn't come until later um but that doesn't mean this wasn't a great like opening sequence because i I was waiting for something to happen um Mm. not like a boss battle by any means especially it coming hot off the tail of the troll you know because that was a few minutes ago um but yeah, it was it was fantastic, and the the dialogue was just great the entire way. You know, there's this banter that he has. In obviously, when you come to find out why, you know, he keeps talking about how it, nothing he's doing is hurting him. But mm-hmm. in that moment, you don't really think anything of it. It's more like a you know, this guy's just talking shit, like uh, t- calling me weak, essentially. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean the whole the whole battle was just it was great because it's a it was like you could feel and this this is why i loved it so much is you could feel kratos's shell breaking because it had been so long since he had to go this full Mm -hmm. force and especially within a obviously he was away from atreus who was back in the hut but still he's that close to home whether it be emotionally or physically he doesn't he was too scared to break out who he really was. And then he was forced to, in order to get out of that situation. And you could just tell like whenever he's walking back after he kind of throws the stranger over the cliff, walking back to the hut and kind of recomposing himself and getting ready to, you know, tell his son that they have to, (coughs) excuse me, that they have to go. It was, it was really cool to see like that transformation and like see, his character being forced to have some reservation and like change back into the father figure, you know, for the sake of a son, not even himself. Cause you could tell he hates himself. So, I mean, and saying Kratos, I'm I'm right there with you. (laughs) Yeah. And like you get a sense of growth because Kratos at the beginning does everything he can to avoid having this fight with this asshole who's shown up on his doorstep. He does. It gives him like three chances. Yeah, he does. And he's still like he takes a punch to the face and is still like, dude, you got to go. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, knowing what you know after or before the punch, it's like or then it's just like, all right, this random dude just punched me. And then when you come to find out, it's like that couldn't have felt good. 
in that moment. That punch (laughs) in the face could not have just been like a normal dude punching Kratos. It had to hurt. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it was it was good, and the it just (coughs) excuse me, it just slingshots the whole game from there. Like everything just kind of moves forward at such a rapid pace, and there's so many cool. So huge world moments in this. Not everything is just right in your face. Some things are just like in the distance, and it's it's just awesome. You know, yeah. just the world that this this game sets up for us. Yeah, for sure. And, and from this point on, um, you know, we we come back to the house, we grab Atreus, and we're like, all right, we're gonna go fucking do this shit. And one of the things that I think is really strong about God of War's narrative is that there is a singular goal throughout the entire game we've got mom's ashes she told us to go to the highest mountain we got to spread her ashes and everything that happens off of that all of the the you know the setbacks the occasional distractions ultimately the goal of reaching the summit of the mountain is the end game and we never stray from that it gives the the narrative this sort of forward momentum and what i what i really like about it is that it is a sympathetic goal it's a relatable goal and it's comprehensive you know we're not setting out to save the world the stakes aren't super high at the beginning but it is a a noble goal that makes you want to root for these two characters as they set out into the world i think it's a really really strong foundation to build a story around yeah i agree and like i just to kind of pivot off of something you said about how it's not like a it's not a life-changing goal. It's not monumentous. <clears throat> Excuse me, by any by any stretch of the imagination. Although it's important to them, I love how it's just such a testament to Santa Monica how they weaved the entire story off of something that was just so incredibly personal, not just to you know a tray or not just to Kratos, but to the son. Mm-hmm. just due to the nature of who Kratos is, because if it was just about Kratos, Kratos could, you know, just go berserk or, you know, he would have the ability to just to, to give up and go fight his own battle just to get this done the way he does. But his son being there and the fact that it's his, his wife and his this mother of his son just make mm-hmm. the fact that everything is just so tied in, whether it's, whether it's Freya or whether it's the stranger or whether it's, you know, whatever's going on, else in you know in the world because you do get this sense of world like the world's moving beyond the game you you sense that thor is there you sense that odin is active and present in the world you sent you get mm-hmm. the sense that you know the battle of the light and the dark elves is very prevalent and you know they do such a good job of building this world and then having it all completely encompass just the simple goal of getting to the top of the mountain and how everything it can assist you in that or in some way they find a way to benefit from it to push forward to that goal is just it's very it's so well written i i can't say that enough yeah yeah, yeah. and most of most of my praise for this game is going to come from the story and the pacing and how you know even if you don't give a shit about <sighs> norse mythology or the machinations of the gods or everything that's around you it's really hard not to to sympathize or at least empathize with with these two you know on a on a journey that is incredibly personable or personal um and the fact that they have to do it together you're totally right this isn't just about kratos 
doing something impossible. It's the fact that he has to have Atreus with him. You know, this is about the two of them. Also, if you don't like Norse mythology, I don't know what's wrong with you. It's incredibly badass. Read one story about Thor. Read one fucking story about Thor. They're all incredible. Um, Small plug for uh, Neil Gaiman has a a book of translated Norse mythology, which is a really good primer and companion piece if this is a game that, like, you really like. Um, It'll give you the the basic shape of a lot of the major stories of of, uh, Norse mythology, and it is fucking badass. Yeah, and I we had kind of discussed this, you know, and obviously Thor is not a big... If you haven't played yet and you're listening to this, you're Mm. not going to see Thor this game right like or odin yeah you just kind of you hear about him you read about him they're not you know god of war doesn't blow their load all at once like they're gonna they're gonna take the opportunity to build up to that um Mm -hmm. what thor's coming though in the next the next game um but that being said the reason i bring that up is that um like i wanted to touch on like the dramatization of Norse mythology and the culture surrounding the Norse mythology, thanks to Marvel, throw it out the window. <laughs> Just throw yeah. it all out the window. The Norse are all drunk, evil bastards that just want to murder, pillage, rape, and steal. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much the heart and soul of all of, not all Norse mythology, but the entire, a lot of the stories in North mytho- Norse mythology. It's very selfish, very drunk. And this this game, I love it because it's like as you're finding out these stories, Mimir is telling you these tales, which is arguably one of my favorite parts of the game, is oh, yeah. hearing the lore. It there's a, such a juxtaposition between your characters and the mission they're on, and the values that Kratos is trying to instill in Atreus, and then the world that they're in. So it creates kind of like a you know, every story has that like undertone of like a an agenda. I shouldn't say agenda, but just a, a message <laughs> they're trying to get through. And this and yeah. this one is, you know, despite everything being shit, you know, not not so blatant, but just despite how awful everything is in the world you're in, being so cruel, you can be the one that inspires that change. And you see that message come through near the end with Kratos and Atreus as he starts his transformation when he finds out his secret. So mm-hmm. it's it's very light in the beginning and it hits you at the end, but the juxtaposition of the world that they're in, the new world that they're in especially, and Kratos and Atreus fight to, to maintain their goodness is just such a good underlying plot point that just kind of carries the story forward with the momentum it already has from just being a great story. Yeah. One of the things that I think really ties in um, the values that Kratos is trying to instill in, in Atreus um, and Kratos's own sort of self-loathing and, and the regret and sort of pain he feels about all the things he's done in his past is the phrase, you know, be better, which is repeated a lot where Kratos, you know, as he's on his own personal journey to try to make amends or at least come to grips with who he's been is is trying to instill 
better values in Atreus and try to come to an atonement that way. Um, which is, you know, it, it works from a mythological standpoint and it also works from a very personal standpoint. It, it's, it's really well done. Yeah, for sure. So we set out towards the mountain and here's where we start to meet some of the characters that are going to follow us through for the rest of the game. So we meet Brock and Sindri, we meet Freya, um, and, and one of the things that I had written here is that this is kind of a small cast, but it's a well-utilized cast. For sure. Where a lot of these characters are super fleshed out. Um, they, they got some great voice acting, and there's, there's narrative arcs there for each of them. Um, was, a char- was there a character for you that, that kind of jumped out as, as a real standout? Oh, definitely Mimir. I mean, Mimir is my favorite in the game, not just because he carries the the burden of telling the other stories. All these stories that he's telling, he finds a way to weave into the importance. Um, And I I love how they they made it to where it's like anything you, anytime you started doing something interesting, he'd be like, and we'll pick that up later. Like the little (laughs) one-liners he'd have or something that were just always funny. Um, Yeah. But like his importance to just reminding Kratos and Atreus of like what's right, what's wrong, like being the voice of reason and Kratos's reception to actually listening to what he has to say most of the time. Mm-hmm. It's it allows you to see Kratos's growth throughout the story, not just from a father son perspective, from a, an outside looking in. This is you know you did this. This probably you probably shouldn't do that. This was right. This was wrong. Just he doesn't. It's not so blatant, but he does that throughout the story, and it's very good. And team that with his incessant talking about the lore and the questions and the relationship that he has with. Um, I would say a relationship that he has with. Atreus is it's just really cool it really it needs like that third party there to kind of give each give Kratos and Atreus apart from each other their own perspective and I think they use Mimir to do that and it's it's really fascinating how it pull they pull it off yeah Mimir wears a lot of hats throughout this game I think where he is the comic relief um he's also sort of like as the player are sort of way into the rest of the world and the lore. Um, and he serves as the, the sort of moral like check of the group. I think you're absolutely right where, you know, he'll have a lot of conversations with Kratos that no one else will, you know, about saying like, you got to tell your kid, you, you got to tell your kid. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I 100% agree. Mimir is a standout. I mean, there's there's one of the nice things about not having a ton of characters is I don't think there's a weak one in the bunch, really. Um, no, there, I, and I think that another one of the reasons that I like Mimir is, and I before we moved on, because I definitely want to talk about yours as well, but the reason I like his character is that he is, in every sense and how he acts in this game, that is an integral part of his lore in actual Norse mythology. He was tied to the tree. He was beheaded and kept, and he just knows everything because he's been around. And mm-hmm. that level of knowledge and his insight that he has in the game is not something that they made up or something to carry that perspective and dialogue throughout the game. It would, it's 
pulled right out of mythology and used in a way to carry the story forward and in this perspective. It's just it's brilliant how they did that. And that's why I have such appreciation for his his character. Yeah, most definitely. And you get the sense that uh, Mimir is more worldly than a lot of the characters that you'll meet. Um, you know, he's the only one that can identify Kratos as the ghost of Sparta. Like, it's insane that he knows that title. Um, sure. And you get a sense that he's lived a life outside of just the Norse mythology that, that he's currently occupying. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah. who's yours, Max? I must know. <laughs> Ooh. Characters that, like, I I really like Brock and Sindri as a pair. I think it's a, it's a cool interpretation of, of dwarves that you don't generally see. Um, you know, Brock especially as this kind of, like, rough Texan dude, I think is really <laughs> pretty funny. Um, and I think it, it works really well. Um, and, you know, they, they kind of... They carry a lot of the, the secondary characters, like, weight, where they, they have their own sort of relationship that they have to mend, and by the end of it, there's a lot of growth between the two of them. Um, I liked seeing it. Yeah, and I, I, the one thing I picked up between the two of them was it, their, their ups and downs very much mirrored where Kratos and um, Atreus were at. But mm-hmm. because it was from other characters, it was more on the nose, putting you in the in the perspective of, hey, here's what's going on between these two. Here's what you're looking out for. And that's subtly what's happening between Kratos and Atreus, because they have the they're apart and then they, you know, they learned that they're both together. And then they did like, man, whatever. They don't care. <laughs> you know, they're all haphazard about it. And then they finally come to an agreement and then use their powers together for a common good which is exactly kind of what happens with Kratos and Atreus. So I, I I like those characters a lot. And I love, I love Brock's dialogue. Like, cause each of them have their own quirks, which I love. I love that Brock is that hard ass. Mm-hmm. And there was one moment with him that I, that just really stands out. It was early on whenever he's bickering at Kratos and essentially he was telling him, it was something about it, telling him to like fuck off or something like that. And then Atreus said something, and he was like, I don't care if you're a kid. Fuck you, too. Like He's like, <laughs> just riffs right at him, too. And then Sindri with his, like, fear of germs. And then whenever, mm. what was it with, the, it wasn't the head, but it was something they gave him. Uh, and then probably he just the started, tooth. Was it the tooth? No, it was, I don't think it was the tooth. It was, Maybe it was. I don't know. He just started vomiting. And he was like, mm. I gotta go and start puking in, in the back. I just... I love that, like, because there's absolutely no reason they had to include that. Like, it was just mm-hmm. something that they made to add more life to that character, and that's just, it's very, very interesting. I think you got a sense that whoever animated both Brock and Sindri had a lot of fun with it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and, you, and you need that humor, because, you know, a lot of the, <coughs> excuse me, a lot of the game is very dark and, and grim, especially listening to Mimir's stories about death and torture and rape, and like, right. they're just kind of brutal. Like, it's... Mm-hmm. But yeah. I, I I do want to give like a a shout out, and I know we'll talk about this and have already. But like the character growth and of Kratos cannot be overstated in this game. Mm-hmm. It is just phenomenal. Uh, that's all I'm going to say about it because I'm sure we'll talk about it more later. But like it's just just a big <laughs> big high five to you, Kratos. Yeah. 
So look at you, man. <laughs> look look real, at you. <laughs> real dudes rock energy. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so we we work our way through this pretty linear progression where we're introduced to a lot of the the main characters that we'll see throughout our story. We get a compass. That's nice. Um, we set out to the Lake of the Nine, and this is where we meet uh, Jormungandr, the the world serpent, for the first time. And this is one of the few cutscenes that I think is there purely for the spectacle of it, um, which I think means it's a good moment to just talk about the creative elements of the game as well as the 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 art direction for this. Um. Because I love the character design of of the world serpent, um, you know. I don't know how you make a gigantic, you know, world encompassing snake and make it look kind of friendly. It has like sort of this personable beard. Um, Santa Monica he's Studios got arms, man. How's he How's he going to shave? All right, come on. That's a good point. All right, touche. <laughs> No, but uh, Santa Monica's interpretation of, of the Norse world, um, I, I, I just thought it was staggering. I, I thought it was incredibly well done and thoughtful. Yeah, and I, like I said earlier, and I, I try not to draw comparisons to Dark Souls games whenever mm. we're on the show, but I'm going to draw one that, you know, normally that's all about combat. But I love that the world, I had a very similar feeling of the world in this game where it's very, even though there's, it's, it's alive. I felt lonely. Like Mm -hmm. as I'm moving through this, obviously Atreus and Mimir were there with me for the majority of the game. But like, I just felt like, even though they were there, we were the only ones there. And other than us and the forsaken or, you know, that, all the dead shit. Yeah. Yeah. And I hated it, but I, I loved it at the same time because I, I think that it's, if you can make the world make me want to explore it that much more, because it's actually really the exact opposite of what I'm used to. I'm playing horizon right now and you can't go five seconds without running into a living creature in Mm -hmm. any direction. So like moving in an area to where you're, whether it's deliberate or just exploring the world is just dead, but it's still gorgeous. Like it just looks great. And while, like I said earlier, it feels alive at the same time like you could look off in the distance you see the world serpent and you can hear it breathing and you can see even up on the mountaintop it scales moving as it's slow as it's breathing and it's just like the water moving in the distance and just it has a pulse to it like that not a lot mm-hmm. of games can capture with that just size and scope um so i mean and just the the colors it's very the world is not bright. It's very dull, dull, but obviously if this was bright and shiny, it would kind of offset the, the feel of the game outside of whenever you're in the, you know, the witch's woods right before you get to the giant turtle, turtle boy. Um, Mm. but other than that, it's just, it's very dark and dull and it just matches the tone really well. So as far as like creativity in the game, they took a, a lot of care to make sure that tonally the game was sound, top to bottom in the world that you're in makes matches this idea of death and you know a a a journey that is plagued by failure and uh forgottenness and in a land of the unknown and 
just like they just matched the tone so well of what the story was setting with the spectacle it's placed in. So big, big shout yeah. out to Santa Monica for that. <clears throat> it's huge. Most definitely. Most definitely. And it, the world, it's you're right. It, despite the fact that it's lonely and it's, you know, it, absolutely barren, it does feel like at one time it was lived in. You know, you see the ruins of towns or like shipwrecks and things. And there are signs that there was once a bustling sort of civilization here. But it's all it feels like you just missed it. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I can remember one specific time that it was after the lake had already lowered and I was rowing Mm. back to the center bridge and I just kind of looked up as I was rowing and I was like, wow, like it, it just looks really cool. You can see the world serpent in the background. And I was like, I wonder what this I thought to myself, I wonder what this is like. Or was like whenever everyone was here. I wish that I had like artwork of like people walking on the bridge and stuff like that. So I made that connection without even thinking about, you know, how the game works and the mechanics of the game and how artful it is. Like just thinking, being in the world, wow, I want to see what this is like whenever Mm. it's alive and bustling. So I, and like you said, you do really feel like you just missed it. I 100% agree with that. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough line to hit, right? That it's not a world that's completely dead, but also there's nobody fucking around. Yeah, and that like that's why I bring up the world of Dark Souls too because I very much mm. feel the same way, like I just missed it. You know, yeah. I, I missed <clears throat> I missed before all these people went undead and like all this stuff. And Dar- or um, in God of War, it's it's a very similar feeling, especially like even when you're down in Helheim. You know, when all the spirits are going by and things like that, but the Valkyries are missing. And then you get all the way at the end and there's like that this, the guardian guy that makes sure everyone that's dead is dead. And you look <laughs> on and see like, <coughs> excuse me, you look on and see the crow. And it's like the world itself, it's alive. And even everything that's actually living is just distant and untouchable. And like, so just the way that they present that stuff is just very, it's very interesting. And even as you go from like realm to realm, they do a mm-hmm. great job of capturing what the life was like in those realms. You know, even the ones that are just very, you know, very sparse and you can't go into them very far. Mm-hmm. Um, like, uh, was it Nilfheim? Yeah. The, yeah. the poison the- area. Niflheim. Yeah, Niflheim. When you're in there, it's just like, it's just a crowded bog of poison. And it's like that whole, the whole idea, the whole vibe that they instill there, obviously, is the fact that like there's nothing you can do here. But when you walk in, before you even figure out what is at the end of that corridor, you like look out over the edge and like you're like, oh my God, like no one would have to live here. This is. The, what actually happened in each one of those when you got into them, the vibe is very much uh, portrayed before you even find those things out. Yeah. So I, I really appreciate that about it. Obviously, I didn't know all, what all those realms were going in. I didn't delve that much into mythology. So if you guys mm-hmm. did, good for you. But I did not. So <laughs> Santa Monica Studios has said in the sequel, you will be able to travel to all of the different realms, which I am so excited for just based on how well and how differently, um, 
each of those realms is presented here. Like the the handful that we get to see, um, I I think have such a distinct kind of energy about them that you know they don't feel like just a different part of of Midgard. You know, they all they all feel like they have a a, a character all their own to them. Hmm. That's cool because there was still a few you couldn't access. Yeah, I'm pretty sure in the game, like three of them maybe that were you just never touched. And even so, I mean, if we have the ability to access all the realms, I'm sure there will be a different area we'll be able to get to. Because I know, like, you walk into the Jotunheim and there's just just only the story elements, you know, mm-hmm. just that brief area. And the same with uh, Niflheim and uh, the, the Musel, Muselfheim or whatever it is, the fire area. <laughs> yeah. So. <clears throat> yeah, we haven't even seen Asgard yet, which I'm very excited about. I obviously I thought that's where the game was going to end up like you'd go to Asgard but obviously mm-hmm. that's what's coming in in the future so we'll get there though. Yeah, we will get there. So from the Lake of the Nine that's sort of our hub for the rest of the game and this is where the it got a war sort of fully becomes itself I think. You know, this is where you'll get the opportunities to explore, you'll go on side quests. Um, you know, you can forage for resources, for upgrading new armor. Um, and when you've done a little bit of that and gotten a sense of it, you get back on the main route. Um, you'll have your small detour into Elfheim. And the only thing I'll say here is that the game does this a couple of times where it'll yank an objective away from you. You know, you're at the base of the mountain and then all of a sudden, oh no, it's the black breath or something. You know, we can't get there. We need to go and do this other thing first. Um, and if I have one criticism of the narrative, I, I've never been a fan of this kind of storytelling where it's, you know, it feels like a fake out, um, to try to get you from one place to another. No, I, I agree, especially whenever there's been other critical elements of the game that you could hearken to where you'd be able to just be like, oh, well, why couldn't you have just done the thing you did back there to solve this issue? Right. It's like. Kratos, I've seen you jump 75 feet into the air <laughs> and then punch the top off of a mountain before. Why can't you just jump over this black fog and then scale the side of the mountain with the sun on your back? Like, I've, I just did that back there. Like, what, what's yeah. the big deal? So, I, I don't know. I just, I agree. I, I hate that type of thing. I think if you're going to do it, the spectacle needs to be larger. So that way it does, it feels insurmountable. Because a lot of the the challenges they put in front of you don't feel that way, like the right. gate the gate of the Jotunheim being crushed during that battle, that made mm. sense. Like, oh my god, it's crushed. Like, we literally can't do anything about that. We got to find another way. Yeah, but the pervasive black fog that's over like six seven feet of this little bridge that you could easily throw your son and then jump over. Like, yeah, I don't know about that, man. Like, <laughs> I think I think we're gonna be fine here, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah, so. and this is a this is a very rare stumbling block i think in the story but you know i it gets a pass because elfheim is cool and it, it was fun to see all that kind of things um but yeah so we make it back from elfheim and i said at the beginning that i think you could divvy this story up into three acts and we're approaching the end of act one i think each of these acts is sort of punctuated with a big boss fight at the end um our first big boss fight is with a dragon. That shit rules. 
and it's a culmination of you know everything we've talked about at this point where Atreus has really been trying to prove to his father that he's capable that he's able to survive out in this world and this fight with a dragon is the first time that Kratos takes some cues from Atreus like we're gonna fight this thing you go left I go right and we'll divvy it up that way it's a it's a really good way to to encapsulate everything that's come before it um you know and you succeed and the fight is fucking rad um you know one of the things that i'll say for boss fights in general throughout this game is i don't think they're particularly difficult but the production value sells them yeah i i agree that was actually one of my only real complaints about this game i played it on hard difficulty um Mm. because Again, like we talked about at the beginning of this show, I like to get as much money as I can out of my games. And I, I have been burned so many times by not playing the hard difficulty and just being bored. Um, right. And I will say, you know, I, I didn't not die on some of like the bosses. I in the early game, I died on uh, quite a few times, but about the middle of the game, I didn't even get hit. in the final boss like with you and boulder i didn't even get touched like i've right. I, I just beat the ever-living snot out of that guy <laughs> um other than the valkyrie queen she stuffed my face in the dirt quite a few times she um, caved me in yeah yeah but i i think that's the whole valkyrie conversation is uh, is its own thing that we could discuss because i that's probably one of my favorite things about this game mm. um that being said though i mean the bosses themselves, like like you said, the spectacle. I need to stop using that word. You said it once, and now it's just in my head. Um, <laughs> the The presentation of the bosses is what sells them. You're right; they're not particularly difficult. But what I like about it is, even though they're not difficult, you get a feeling as you're playing it that they're not difficult because of your mastery of your sets of skills or a particular quick time event that you were able to nail, or there was. A, a piece that you know set you up for success before you got there so i i like that you feel like you had something to do even if the boss was too easy you had there was a reason it was too easy and it was because of something you had done and mm-hmm. i feel like they did a really good job of rewarding you for that <coughs> yeah i i think that's fair and each of the bosses serves to drive the narrative forward you know, th- very rarely does a boss feel like a distraction or it comes out of, you know, it just feels um, like an obligation. Mm-hmm. A lot of the times they are a very direct impediment to your goal or, you know, the the next step forward in the narrative when you start to get into, like, fighting the sons of Thor. Mm-hmm. Um, so we punch a dragon and we make it to the top <laughs> of the mountain. And this is, I think, the, the end of Act 1, where we think we've reached our goal, but our princess is in another castle, and we need to, to figure out how to get to Jotunheim. <laughs> your princess is another castle. You don't get your princess, but you get the, the floating the floating head doctor. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, there's been worse trades. Hey, I, like I said, I love Mimir, so. <laughs> I literally, in my notes, just have Mimir love. With a period. <laughs> I think we covered a lot of that. Well, and I like, I, the only thing I want to add to this is I think it, 
Because when you fight, obviously throughout the game, Amir is literally just a talking head that's hanging off your belt. But like, mm-hmm. there's not, it's not just as simple as like you find this talking head. I love that the game makes you go through finding him, decapitating him, getting the worms and the dirt <laughs> necessary to stuff in his face, taking it right. back to Freya, and then bringing him back to life. And then watching him as he's puking up dirt and worms, like in cockroaches mm-hmm. and shit, uh, like while he's waking up. I just thought that was so interesting because it gives, not only is it just, it's kind of funny and kind of gross, but it like also adds the sense of like accomplishment. So it's like, I found this head. I brought it back to life. It is now my head. It owes me everything. <laughs> so because I freed him and kind of didn't free him all in once. Like, I don't know. I, I just like that whole the whole Mimir arc I thought it was great yeah the sort of existential dread of Mimir is sort of played for laughs where he's not he's definitely not alive you know he's reanimated which is something different and he prefers not to think about it yeah I I love whenever he gets on those little those little conversations where it's just like you know he's like I'm nauseous how can I be nauseous even though I don't have a yeah. stomach or like <laughs> It talks about how anything about his body that isn't there works now. Like, it's, just, mm. it's funny. And the whole time, like, I'm playing the game as I'm, like, I'm running or I'm in battle and I'm seeing Amir's head on my belt, like, ragged all over the place. Right. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that poor thing. <laughs> There's a great line. Um, I think it's in Muspelheim, you know, the, the big fire area. And Atreus says something like, Jesus, I'm really hot. And... Uh, Mimir is like it, you think you're uncomfortable my nose itches yeah that poor <laughs> it <was> guy like, <laughs> <was> like, <coughs> oh that sucks <laughs> poor guy <laughs> I mean he has no so, central nervous system though so I'm not really sure how that works so I'm not sure how any of it works it, it's magic you don't got to explain shit that's fair he does have glowing gold eyes mm-hmm. so up until this point we've been talking about the narrative in a pretty granular sense and to to broaden it out for acts two and three to just sort of hit like the major plot points um act two i think is all about kratos and kratos sorting to coming to grips with who he was his past and sort of you know having a conversation about it with his son so um, this sort of comes to a head after we fight with the the sons of Thor. Um, and I I love this moment in the story. After you kill, I forget if you kill Modi or Magni first. It doesn't matter; they'll be dead by the time the credits roll. But you kill one of them, and the other son is so obviously like surprised and scared it feels like this is the first time that things have gone off script for for the norse gods something happened here that shouldn't have happened and you you get a sense of how much of a weight the character of kratos can have on other realms it's it's such a cool fucking moment you really do like whenever you sink your axe into again i don't know which what what one of his name the bigger one um mm. and like it's clear that he's dead the yeah. look of panic and fear mm. 
and then also the look of surprise and shock and awe because it's it's like a well-known fact that like just a mortal can't kill a god like it's just that's just a fact and then to see Mm -hmm. atreus like kind of in shock and then to see the other guy just like panic it it was you're right it's like world shattering implications and i love oh my god i love that because like that happens and you think back on the battle and it's like okay so what it really wasn't a battle for them if that's the case they had no fear of dying they were there Mm -hmm. just touring toying with you and they were going to kill you and it kind of goes back to like how underplayed the the brutal mythology of the norse culture really is how they're just sadistic and fucked up like Mm -hmm. they're just there to, to fuck with you and then eventually kill you but man you're right when he dies it is just it's off it's awesome it's so cool <laughs> and i think it's a real turning point in the story because up until this point like you as kratos have done a good <laughs> job pretty much staying out of like the god's business you know you you kidnap a mirror and that was kind of sneaky but nobody's really gonna bother you all that much about it this is the first time where you've done some fucked up shit and you've entered their world now um in a way that is kind of deeply personal, I think, for Kratos, because now he's back on his bullshit, killing gods, doing mm-hmm. the shit that, like, has become his namesake and is a part of himself that he really hates. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I think for the next big chunk of the game we're really going to have to come to grips with. Um, shortly after this, Atreus has a freakout. He goes into a coma because he can't sort of to deal with the fact that he's both a human and a god. Um, and so you have to get out your old Blades of Chaos and go into a mission to hell to come to grips with your old self and save your son. And this also was a huge, like, I... I I love a lot of the middle of this game um, and the, the cut scene of, of taking the boat um, from Freya's house, you know, back to your back to your cabin to fetch out a part of your past that you really didn't want to have to deal with again. And strapping it on was was it carries such a narrative weight and it's presented so well. I thought it was really cool. I I also love this scene. Like the Chaos Blades are just iconic, like mm. in video game culture as a whole. You know, whether yeah. you loved God of War or not, you know, everyone knows what the Chaos Blades are. So, you know, knowing what the story was, obviously when Kratos grabbed him, he wasn't thinking about, oh, these are my Chaos Blades. Like it, he was just thinking about all the awful shit that he did and how this is, you know, the turning point for him in this story as well. So, <coughs> excuse me. But. The one thing I like about the Chaos Blades is to touch a little bit on the mechanics and or the new mechanic that, you know, having these weapons adds is I like obviously the the Chaos Blades are more like a crowd control, you know, cuz we kind of talked about this Max, but then mm-hmm. the the Leviathan axe is like still your damage dealer, and I really think that it was intentional, you know, cuz I I really think that Kratos tries to distance himself from those weapons. And mm-hmm. I like, at least that's how I kind of interpreted it as I was playing, because I still found myself using the Vi- the Viathan Axe the majority of the time, unless yeah. I got into a situation where I needed to use them. And I really feel like that mirrored 
how Kratos felt about those weapons as a whole was, you know, if I need to use these, I will, but these are like my last resort and I want to only use them to, to do what I, when it's necessary. And because that's a part of my life I've put behind me, not to mention this is my wife's weapon and mm-hmm. I, I, this is, this is me now, not this. And I, I love how they, they kind of balance that. I mean, obviously that's player to player. You could have put the ax away and not touch it again. Um, but that being said, like I loved, loved, loved how the the Leviathan axe was still like the primary weapon. Just and I always attributed it to it just being Kratos's new life that he's hanging on to now, and not the old one. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely intentional. I think I think the the blades are meant to be a situational and secondary weapon. Um, they still kick a lot of ass and i love all the animations for them but the, the leviathan axe is still your bread and butter and what you'll use 75 percent of the time for sure yeah i found myself switching to the like i would go through my basic attacks and then my runic attacks on the leviathan axe and mm-hmm. then i would switch to the chaos blades get the runic attacks out of those and then switch back to the leviathan axe and just kind of yeah cycle and I really like honestly the combat in this game now that you know I had both weapons I was you know I would I did fine but it wasn't until I spent I and I spent an ungodly amount of time in Evaldi's workshop like just mm-hmm. grinding through that area and I really oh, yeah. feel like that area teaches you how to play and how the combat needs to be pl- done in that game because mm-hmm. you find out how to quickly and effectively eliminate enemies you find out how to do crowd control really well. You find out how to, you know, use your combos effectively and what's really, what really works for you, what doesn't. <coughs> so it's just, and it forces you to, to learn that or else you will die in the fog. Like doesn't matter how good you are. If you're slow, you're going to die in the fog. So I, I really like that. Not only, you know, the mechanics between the two different weapons, but I like how they included an, a very heavily incentivized, portion of the game where you arguably get the best armor i used of all these upgraded armor the rest of the game it was the best oh definitely um, yeah and i like that you get it due to an incentivized area to teach you hey this is how to do combat this is how to do it effectively this is how you need to you know to time your attacks i, I just love that area I, obviously i hated it i hated being in it because it was <laughs> It was a it was a cancer like to to mm. be down there, but it whoever came up with that at Santa Monica like they need to be given a raise because it's so perfectly implemented and it does exactly that it teaches you how to play the game moving forward. Like I said, I didn't I literally did not take damage in the final boss of this game because yep. of how effective I learned combat in Avaldi's workshop. It's crazy how having a timer or some sort of pressure applied to you really forces you to get good at the combat and to think, you know, maybe in a way that you haven't had to up until this point. Like, what is the most effective, you know, time-efficient way that I can take out or clear this room? You know, that's where a lot of the puzzle aspects start to come in. You know, which targets do I have to take out first? Then I can focus down on this guy, get him out of the way, and move on. Yeah, I, I, of all these, is incredible for that. It's a pain in the ass, and it sucks ass to be there, but it it definitely works very well. Yeah, 
Also, can we just talk about the worst enemy in the game? Like it's a it's a close tie, but the worst enemy in the game is the Revenant, hands down. Oh I, my god. I fucking hate those things. Like I just <laughs> I hope everyone out the, there listening agrees because they suck ass. <laughs> I had such a hard time because I what I appreciate is that almost every enemy in the game it felt like there was a correct way to deal with it. Yes. You know, like there's some enemies that you can stun really easily, but they don't take a ton of damage. Or there are ones that like um shock arrows work really well. Um, Revenants hit this weird point where they don't take a ton of shock damage from arrows. They don't take a lot of stun damage from arrows. Um, they moved quickly. And, like, the only kind of effective way I ever had to deal with them was just, like, throw all weapons aside and punch them to death. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, that was the only enemy I found that if it was even one level above me, I couldn't deal with it. Like, it was mm. it was just a pain in the ass. Unless it was by itself, but there was the one realm tear that I yeah. found at, like, level oh, that four one. that had a seven and an eight in it, and I had to wait until, like, end game to go take them down. Like, it was very difficult. That one kicked my ass. I hated that one. I know I got lucky on it. I don't think I could do it again. <laughs> No, it was it was really difficult for me. I died a lot on that one. I died more on mm. Realm Tears probably than any other part of the game. Yeah. Maybe I not like that that, the Queen Valkyrie, but, you know. Yeah. But I like that those challenges are out there, and they're optional. Like, you can save them for the end game when you're leveled up with them, and then it's just like any other enemy encounter. But you come across Realm Tears pretty early in the game, and you're put up against, like, you know, end game enemies which I think mm-hmm. is a really cool idea. <laughs> yeah, and I think it gives you a, a sense of uh, of progression, too, because it's like I think they, they intentionally wanted you to run into these creatures and, and hit that wall and be like, I can't do this. If you can, awesome, good for you, nerd. Like, But <laughs> I think it's meant specifically for you to go, hey, I can always come back to this, and I'll be able to handle it then. Yeah remember this spot come back to it later yeah, for sure so our big capstone to the end of act two is healing atreus and afterward kratos kind of has to to come clean and tell atreus look don't freak out i'm a god you're a god too it's a really it's a you know, for, for how crazy it is, it's a touching moment, I think. And it's played really well where Atreus has, like, kind of a perfect kid reaction where he doesn't super grip the, like, weight of it. You know, his first question is, can I turn into an animal? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kratos is like, I, I don't think so, but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I like, I love the response. Like, because initially in the back of my head, I was like expecting the the whole traditional, oh, my God, I just learned something you've been hiding from me. I'm going to blow up and be angry about it. So Mm. whenever he acted like that kid and was really excited about it, I think that it allowed them to really show Kratos's internalization, you know, because like the bigger battle was yet to come. And that being with dealing with how Atreus handled the information, um, <clears throat> which I, I love that they went that route with it instead of the other one. But mm-hmm. I like 
how Kratos had to deal with it then, because although he told him, yes, I'm a god, that really wasn't the big secret. The big secret was the fact that, you know, he had murdered all the ones of Sparta for the faraway <laughs> land and all that kind of stuff. So, which come, mm-hmm. which does come later. Um, <coughs> excuse me. But yeah, I, I think that it, it, it's shocking to Kratos in a way that it allows you to connect with that character a little more. Because again, we were all expecting the, why'd you lie to me? Why would you not, why yeah, would you yeah. hide things from me response? And then whenever I, I like how Kratos kind of reacts to it, you know, he's very solemn, but as we've learned through this point of the game, Kratos is very good at internalizing his feelings and then, you know, having to see the ramifications of what, he, what he's done and hiding that come forward next. I think that Kratos blames himself for it, which is why you don't see him lash out sooner. It takes a while for him to deal with it. So that's a really good point. And this is a part of the game that I really, I want to focus down on for a little bit. Yeah. Um, Cause act three is all about Atreus kind of coming to grips with what it means to be a God what is this new existence that he's found himself in? Um, and my first note is in all caps, and it says, Godhood does not look good on Atreus. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, and, he's a bastard. The, for like two or three solid narrative straight gameplay hours, he is mm-hmm. a little bastard. He is such an asshole. <laughs> and I like that it's done gradually, where Atreus at the beginning starts saying some weird shit like, you know, we don't have to do the main quest right now. We're gods. We can do whatever we want, right? And that's like, okay, that's a that's a tiny red flag in the distance. <laughs> well, I, so I don't know whether it was just like, I, I obviously I'm a parent. I've got more kids than I'm proud of. Uh, <laughs> but <coughs> that being said, like the um, the whole thing, like when when I grew up at me michael growing up if anything my dad had ever said i would i don't care if he was making a joke if i had in a very impolite tone said whatever i would have been back like backhanded Mm -hmm. through a window (laughs) and then i would have had my ass beat and then i would have been forced to eat whatever blood that i choked up on the floor like i was a very strict household i grew up in yes sir no sir and that's okay i i feel like i'm better for it so like I don't know whether it was that or the fact that like I just did I don't know the first time he said whatever to Kratos I had like a dad panic attack I was like <laughs> oh no he didn't like you bitch slapped that little boy like right now <laughs> like it hurt it hurt my soul and it just kept getting worse and worse <laughs> it is really it that was one of the big questions I had about this whole segment is that Kratos is uncharacteristically like hands-off parent during this entire segment um you know and i think maybe you're right where there is like a little bit of guilt or or you know he's finally forged this new connection with his son and he's not quite sure how to handle it but like he allows it atreus to mouth off to the dwarves for a while he's a huge dickhead to my man sindri for no reason (laughs) um he gives him like the I would I would say a fairly restrained lecture after he straight up kills a god. 
Yeah, I I really think it I think it's guilt. I think that was what the story was trying to trying to portray. Just mm-hmm. just due to the fact that like almost like you know, I had no right to hide this from him. How do I how do I tamper hit how he handles it? Who am I to tell him how to handle this whenever I obviously didn't even know how to handle the fact that I'm a god. You know, right. because realistically that's what he was hiding and not dealing with. So I feel like it shows a it like that response, although it wasn't the right move to make, shows a lot of emotional maturity from Kratos. You know, the I need to keep my cool here. I need to let him hash these feelings out, but I also need to make sure I'm approaching this from a perspective that whenever I do handle it, I'm making the right call because I've obviously made some wrong ones already. Mm-hmm. So that's what I, I think picked up a- from it. No, and I think that's good. It's worth noting that this is, again, another one of those moments where there's a lot that goes unsaid. Mm-hmm. You know, Kratos is pretty stoic, and that that silence from him and his all of a sudden lack of direction towards Atreus, I think is telling. And I think you're, you're probably right that that's what it's based in is that sense of guilt. Yeah. Um, we'll see. So, so we finally make it back up to the top of the mountain and things kind of come to a head as Balder catches up with us again. Atreus has a huge freak out, shoots his dad with an arrow and that's sort of a breaking point. And, think that's sort of fair um and we end up back in helheim and i've i've called this the uh kratos melts down on his son in a walmart moment it's it was i was waiting for it like i I needed it to happen (laughs) i'm I'm gonna back up just a few seconds before that oh yeah i wanted to talk about this so like whenever they're they made god of war for god of war 2018 whatever it's called <clears throat> Obviously, there's a, a large amount of like fan service that needed to go into the game to keep the the characterization of like these large cuts, uh, quick time battles alive. I love how they did the the fight on the back of was it the back of the dragon? Yeah, yeah. The yeah, fight yeah. on the back of the dragon was phenomenal. It was so cool, like just flying through the ruled. air. You're hanging off the edge and like having to dodge punches, like and mm-hmm. like. I don't know how much like you took in from it, but like looking in the background, you see the world below you. There's little tidbits of like where, you know, you've been and things like that as you like pass by, like this is what I was talking about earlier where the world still feels alive yet dead all at the same time is it these moments right here. So like this battle, although it was, it was fast, it was just, it was brilliantly executed. And what I like about it is the fact that like, there's no health bar on the screen. You're not chunking it down piece by piece. It's just right. you trying to survive. And I like that it it they don't have that health bar there because it allows you to focus on just specifically doing what you have to do to stay alive and not specifically trying to whittle his his health down so you can focus on the environment or how cool it is to be on the fucking dragon or what's Atreus doing in this moment. Like if it were all about his health bar you know, I wouldn't have dove off to like grab my kid at that at this moment mm-hmm. as opposed to like a different one. And it allows them to tell the story in a different way. And I think that they utilize that element like just geniusly here at this spot. One of my favorite parts about this set piece is that it ends with like crashing down onto the bridge, <coughs> rushing across the bridge into like, you know, through Brock's workshop 
and then into the like uh the realm warp room and like the entire time up until this point that sort of hub has been like kind of a safe space it's been like the only place where like the plot happens outside of this area yeah for uh, sure. and it feels like it feels like you're breaking a rule when you rush <laughs> in and you know the mechanics of the game like you know warping from realm to realm interact with the story in this in this set piece and i i it's really cool how you end up back in hell yeah i love that scene i i loved just everything about it even the whole falling on your shield like legend of zelda mm-hmm. shield surfing style <laughs> like was <coughs> it was genius but yeah that just fast forward back to that moment it was it was cool to see like after you be bre- breach the gates of hell on you know all being atreus's fault like mm-hmm. like you said the walmart dad yeah. the, the dad with a kid in walmart like i loved it because it has like the perspective of it is what i love like the top down like kratos on top and the the top portion of the screen and atreus down at the bottom it's very it's domineering and it's like a matter of fact it's like this is how it's gonna be shut the fuck up <laughs> stop being a little dick face and you'll do mm-hmm. exactly what i say or i'm gonna kill you like he didn't say he's gonna kill him but that's you know not that he would it's, kill his son, but he's going to beat the shit out of him. the undertone there, yeah. <clears throat> so I, I liked it a lot. I thought that was a long time coming. And man, was it needed because, like, it was that not only was that like the breaking point for like Kratos, but it was also the breaking point for me because I don't know how annoyed I was getting. Yeah. The incessant comments. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. He, I actually Kratos stopped has- doing side quests and things because I didn't know how long it was going to take for him to stop saying it. So I just progressed until I, it, it ended. Thank God. Yeah. Kratos has a great line in there where he says something like, we're here because of you. Do not forget that. Which is like, <laughs> that is a, that is a flashback to a conversation I've had with my dad multiple times. <laughs> yeah. And that, well, that's the thing. It's like, although this situation arguably, you know, I have never been, you know, because of a fight I caused, launched my dad and someone else that he was fighting with into hell. Obviously, that's pretty brutal. Um, mm. But that seems like a normal day for Kratos, you know. But, like, thinking mm. back on, like, even being a parent, like, having that conversation, it's <laughs> looking at a kid and saying, remember, we're here and it's all your fault and don't you forget it. That's usually not something, like, you hear from a parent until you're probably, like, a teenager yeah, because you know, that's, that's true. It's pretty. It's pretty heavy. Yeah, because Atreus is. is old enough and mature enough to comprehend what it means. So laying on that on like his nine, ten year old head or however old he is, is just like, mm, like that, that's enough to fuck up a kid for a while. Emotional mm. damage. <laughs> it is really funny to imagine hearing exactly that line of dialogue from a dad in the frozen food section of a Walmart. <laughs> Remember, we're here. For, we're here because of you. Of you. <laughs> As he grabs pizza rolls. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh man. So we're like, we're rapidly coming towards like a conclusion to this story. Um, you know, Atreus has, has finally figured out how to not be a dick. He started to like embrace the responsibility and and what it means to be a god. Um, we get one more like kind of 
side piece, big uh, set piece action where we travel into the mouth of the world serpent, which doesn't last that long, but I thought it was pretty fucking cool. I was into that. It was, yeah, it was kind of neat. I was, mm-hmm. um, I wasn't like grossed out, but I, I think I wanted a little more from it. Like, Agreed. I, I wasn't overwhelmed, but I was not, I don't know. It was just, it was mediocre. I thought it could be like, I wanted to feel more claustrophobic than I did, is what I'm trying to yeah. say. Like, I felt a little, like, if I look at the side of the, the world serpent, it was like from the edges of his insides to his outsides was like six inches, as opposed to like, multiple feet and it been like a six foot area i was like rowing through stomach acid and i wanted stuff to like be burning slowly as i was moving and i i don't know i just thought they could have done a little more with it 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 felt cleaner than it should have i think you're totally right um but yeah we're there for narrative reasons we get mimir's second eye back um and on the way out of that we are launched directly into the the final battle um, between you and Balder and Freya, who is trying to get you to stop fighting her son, and she thinks the best way to do that is the reanimation of a dead frost giant trying to punch you in the mouth. I have issues with the choice there. <laughs> I was like, you can do whatever you want. Because, like, the size and... Like the size of that, I don't know. I, I I don't know. It just did. It didn't feel like the right thing to do. Essentially, mm. it made it for a cool ass battle. Like yep. it was really neat. But I don't know. <coughs> Freya makes some choices. Freya makes some choices. <laughs> so I so I I'll, go ahead. I'll I'll make that point here a little bit. <laughs> no, no, I think it, now is probably a good time to talk about the relationship that Balder has to his mother um, and the sort of reflection that I think, you know, the kind of parallels that they draw between Kratos and Atreus. Um, Because I think, you know, Freya is a misguided mom, but ultimately did what she thought was best for her son and can't make amends for it doesn't have the ability to to reconnect with her son in the same way that Kratos is able to do with Atreus. Right. I I think that that's like key in a good story. Mm-hmm. Um and really any good story is that the elements, the thematic elements that they use mirror every set of characters or every type of relationship whether, you know, However, it's what characters they are, they're going to have the same dichotomy to help push the story forward because that's what makes the story. So in in this case, you know, obviously the <coughs> the uh, parallel being that secrets and the choices of the father or the mother in this scenario <clears throat> caused a disparity in the relationship and Kratos has, you know, doesn't say anything, but you know that he's thinking that as he's observing things go down between the two of them, between Freya and Balder. So, yeah, um, yeah it's just kind of... It's good storytelling. I wasn't, again, I wasn't overly pleased with the, the battle itself. I wanted it to be harder, but 
I don't know whether it's just because I spent too much time on Evaldi's workshop. Well, yeah, I think it's pretty easy to be, you know, overpowered by this point in the game. But also, I think you're right that a lot of the mechanics that we see with the Balder fight here at the end are the same as what we saw at the beginning of the game. Mm-hmm. He fights very like there aren't a lot of new moves that are added. Um, you know, he has one phase where you can only hit him with the axe or you can only hit him with uh the the blades of chaos but that's kind of it you know like there there isn't a huge mix-up from what we've seen before yeah and i i tried to justify it as well like i was like okay like yes i've been through a lot more i'm expanding my arsenal in this new world that you are kind of Mm. stagnant in also you just gain the ability to feel pain for the first time so that's definitely gonna hamper like the situation also like very like gwyn ish like from dark souls like very run down very beaten very emotionally torn and it's not supposed to be the hardest battle in the game because of the fact that kratos at this point has taken a like i said he's he's embraced everything he's found and 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 learned and grown from it and balder has backtracked and has been emotionally yeah. torn down and is very conflicted in this moment. And the first thing on his head is not surviving or killing Kratos. The first thing on his mind is killing his mom. So mm-hmm. it's easier for Kratos to get in there and get that kill. So I was trying to justify it that way. Um, and I feel like there is some, a little bit of, you could definitely make that argument. Um, yeah. But ultimately, mechanically speaking, it was not a challenge. No, but it's the same with, you know, what we've talked about for boss battles in general in this game. You know, they serve the narrative even if there's spectacle there or there's there's production value, even if it isn't like the most technically challenging. Mm -hmm. For sure. Um, But it does lead us to the emotional, I think, like peak of the game. And that's Kratos killing Balder before he can murder Freya. Um, and I think it's a it's a really poignant moment where, you know, this might be the only god that Kratos has killed that he doesn't regret. Um, where he isn't killing for selfish reasons. And, you know, it allows him, I think, to confront his past self. You know, he was the one who killed his father and the idea of, you know, we need to be better and trying to end that the cycle of violence. Um, You know, a a lot of themes of the game come to a head here, Um, including the fact that there are unintended consequences. Freya freaks out and will most definitely be at least a secondary antagonist in the sequel. Um but, you know, it, Kratos has absolutely destroyed that relationship in order to prevent another, you know, family violence incident, which I, I it's a it's a good conclusion to that story. Yeah, I, I love the look that they gave Kratos whenever he was justifying what he had done. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of themes throughout the game as, you know, as Mimir tells us stories or as Kratos is commenting on something that's happened 
where they use violence or they use uh, lust or they use other things as reasons for the the bad decisions that they've made. And especially coming off the tail of what had happened with Atreus and the, the bad reason he gave for not telling his son that he was a god, justifying this to Freya, I don't think was what was actually happening. In my opinion, at this moment, it was he was saying this out loud so Atreus could hear. And so mm. Kratos himself could come to terms with it. I didn't do this to kill. I gave him a chance. Like I let right. him walk away. I did this for you. And he meant it. And it was, mm. it was like I said, a, I know I've used this word a lot tonight too, but it was a juxtaposition to show how heavily and how well thought out that sentence was just based off of, again, the thematic elements of every other story in the game and all the decisions he's made in his past. So I, I, like I said, when he, when he said that, I was like, Oh my gosh, like that was so, it was so good. It was so powerful. And yeah. I know that that was likely a healing moment for Atreus there too. Mm-hmm. So, because Kratos called for him to be reserved and Kratos wants him to understand, you know, we only use violence. We want to be better and we only use violence whenever we absolutely have to. And this was yeah. to save her life. Someone that's helped us and someone that we know can be good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. And I think it also drives home the point too, that like there's a lesson to be learned that when we use violence like that, if, like I said, if there's a greater good behind it, the people who we are that are dealing with it, they you take that from them. You take that pain from them and you deal with it on their behalf so they don't have to. So while yes, Freya didn't die, she's angry at you, she didn't do anything wrong in her mind. Like bearing mm-hmm. that weight, and that's kind of the same thing that Kratos is doing for for Atreus and a lot of the game too. He's bearing the weight of the pain and what it means to have to do the terrible things. And that's why he, you know, he doesn't want him to kill, you know, the guy shoot him with the arrows. Cause if something bad is going to happen, Kratos wants to be the one to bear that weight and that pain. And all the, mm. like you said, all those things come to a head in that moment and you're forced just to, to swallow it and move on from it too. Like it's, it's very good. And Amir does a really good job of summing that up too. After it, you know, he's saying, I forget exactly what he says, but it's something along the lines of, you know, you just have to let her be the bad guy for a while. Like you killed yeah. her son. Like, I don't know what you want me to say. Mm-hmm. So very, very emotional, very strong moment. Really, really like this part of the game. Yeah. And so, yeah, we, we reach ahead with all of those characters. Our main conflict is resolved. The only thing that's left to do is, reach our end goal what what has been driving us forward this entire time and that's to uh reach out and walk up the mountain um and really we get you know there's a lot of lore that gets spilled here and obviously like sequel signals um but there's a great scene of of kratos like taking off the the rags and things that he had covering uh, the burns and scald marks on his arms from where he was chained, you know, in his past life Mm -hmm. and sort of coming to grips with it. And it's a really personal and quiet moment that a character like Kratos 
should, I mean, in the hands of a, a less capable team would never be afforded. Um, a hundred percent agreed. Yeah. It's, it's so well done. Um, so we finally get to spread ashes. You get a sense that these two characters have come together. Uh, you find out that that Treus's name was nearly Loki. Um, and now it's probably time to talk about like, how did you feel at the conclusion of this? Um, I'm going to be honest. I feel I, I don't want to say this without pissing off every God of War fan out there. (laughs) I felt like this was probably the weakest moment of the game for me. I didn't Really? really care that it was Loki. I feel like that was supposed to be some big reveal. And I just, because the whole game I was looking, I wasn't looking for this. Like, I'm not trying to say I saw this coming because I definitely did not. But Mm -hmm. the whole game, I was waiting for a mention of Loki. I was waiting for something like, hey, and that's probably the fault of Marvel, again, like setting us up to think with Loki or with Thor comes Loki. Um, But I was looking for it the whole game, so when it happened, obviously I was like, oh, that's interesting, but it didn't hit me like I felt the game wanted it to hit me. Really, what I was focused on was the glyphs, because I had spent some time looking through all the glyphs and trying to figure out what it was on the wall, and it almost looked like Loki came alive and was something worse and killed Kratos, and maybe there's some implications there later on, but that's really what I was focused on. So when I saw the glyphs and they said his name was supposed to be Loki, I was like, oh, interesting. But I'm mm-hmm. not, I don't know, it just didn't hit me that hard. So I was much more taken with the ending with Freya and Balder and then the actual spreading of the ashes and talking about the giants and all that kind of stuff. Um, now, it did help a little bit that once, because I was like, well, I thought that you know Loki's father was like an, a giant or something like that. And then mm-hmm. I saw on the, I actually looked this up that on the wall, if you translate the symbols that were next to Kratos's head on the wall in like the, the Futhark or whatever that, that language yeah. is, it actually stands for husband of Laufey and father of Loki. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was kind of like it, it rounded that out a little bit more for me. Um, <clears throat> but I don't know, like, I think it's interesting, but I what I do like about it was after you find all that out and you're leaving, I like I I'm not gonna say I like I love how Kratos tells the story of Atreus, yeah, and who that was. It was vet, that was an emotional ass moment because mm-hmm. it's the first time in the game that Kratos tells a story and not Mimir, and he comments on it. Atreus comments on the fact that he actually tells a good story. And it's just, it rounds out, like, everything. So, like, there was this moment that I felt like was supposed to be a high point, and it was low for me. Um, mm-hmm. And then this, and as I was walking down the stairs and Kratos was telling, finishing up the story, man, I was like, I almost cried. Because I was like, Kratos' character has taken, like... I went from hating like really the idea of Kratos as a whole to just absolutely adoring this character who has just shown more emotional depth in, you know, 20, 30 hours of gameplay than I ever will. 
So it's just <laughs> it was it was good, man. Like it was a solid ending. Obviously, I'm sure some people out there appreciated it more because they liked the twist a lot. But man, I it was great. I was I was taken with it. So yeah. I want to hear your thoughts, though. I don't. I wanted to hear how that hit you. So, um, the reveal that Atreus is Loki was kind of like a uh, sort of moment for me. Um, in Norse mythology, spoilers for a dead religion. Um, <laughs> Loki is the one who kills Balder, and that's what begins uh, Ragnarok, which is the death of the gods and their huge, like, end times sort of thing. Mm. So it checks out. Um, I, I won't get too crazy into it, but the way that Balder dies um, is is pretty accurate to mythology there's a couple of of you know liberties taken with it um but i got excited about it because loki is an interesting character in norse mythology who is sometimes on the side of the gods and sometimes not um i have a feeling that that sort of dynamic is going to play out in the next game where maybe we'll get to see you know atreus and Kratos maybe not on the same side at all times, which I think could be a really interesting dynamic as, you know, Atreus is a teenager and probably has the capability to be a bigger shithead than we've seen him here. Yeah, for sure. That's a really good that's a good point I hadn't really considered. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I've, I will admit like I haven't, I've put almost no thought into what the sequel of this game is going to be like just due to the fact that I'm still I'm still digesting this one like, sure. I feel, and this is this is something that's so cool about this game, is I feel like, obviously when this game came out, 2018, this game won pretty much every available Game of the Year award there was. Rightfully so. It was, it was very, very good. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like this game being re-released, it didn't miss a step in four years. Like, this, no, is, a, this is a 2022 game. Like still, mm-hmm. like this, this game carries every bit as much weight as it did back then, and I. That's a very tough thing to do as, as games are evolving, and you know this whether it's an, a narratively or mechanically, like this game stands up on all fronts. And if you haven't played this yet, I mean, go do it. Like it's fantastic, and now that it's really just readily available all over the place, I. You don't really have any more excuses. Just go do it. <laughs> you could pick this game up on PlayStation for like twenty dollars, and that is the steal of the century. It's That's on PS to Plus too. I mean, you're, yeah. I mean, this is one of those games. Like, if you're if you're out there and you're just like solely like an Nintendo Switch player or something like that, like this is one of those games. that's like it might be worth going out and snagging like an old school PlayStation Four model. Mm-hmm. Not just obviously for this game, because there's a lot of really good shit on PlayStation 4. Sony has great exclusives, but man, is this game like worth every penny. Like in the time we spent with it was I'll always remember this one. Like it was probably obviously like as a PC gamer, primarily in pretty much every PC gamer out there will attest to this. You just have this ever-growing backlog that you like never get to 
of games that came out over the course of like the last 10 years. So whenever I review like what I consider my game of the year to be, it just, it's whatever I played that year, not whatever came out that year. So mm. just keep that in mind for maybe like the end of, you know, maybe we'll do something special for like the end of the year or something like that. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. But yeah, this one, th- this is one of the best I've played in recent memory. I think it, you know, one of the questions that we always ask about games on this on this show is, did it accomplish what it set out to do? And I think that, that is such an overwhelming yes in this case. Oh um, my gosh, yes. Holy crap. I Like... Go ahead. Well, just so much of this game is about the narrative and the story that they wanted to construct. Um, and it is so thoughtfully told, so well laid out, so well paced, um, and reaches a really satisfying conclusion that seems somehow true to the character of Kratos and fundamentally changes him going forward. Yeah, I, I couldn't have said that better. I'm not going to spend a bunch of time re- rehashing the same points. The only things that I will say is that, you know, just to bring back what I was saying earlier that I said I would eventually come back to is mm. that, like, the ability... The video games as a whole, and I'll, you'll hear me say this a million times in this podcast. Video games are now my number one favorite storytelling element. I like reading mm-hmm. books. I love watching TV shows. I'm honestly, I haven't really haven't been into movies that much lately. But like, <laughs> there's a lot of good mechanisms to tell a story, and I just don't think anything gets you closer to a character in the way that they think, in the way they act, in a well-told story. And Santa Monica Studios has put their name on the map with this game. Like, this mm-hmm. this is their, like, if they only make games like this for the rest of their time before they're bought up and then they're stuck on Call of Duty 24-7 like every other company, like, <laughs> that, this this will be their, their song. And it was an incredible song. This was their Bare Naked Ladies. So... <laughs> <laughs> near and dear to my heart always but i mean i i can't say n- enough good things about this so mm-hmm. this is the the narrative elements of this game captured me in a way that it's it's in a way that like a slow build would but there's not a slow build it's just very consistently told but it still hits just as well at the end with like those emotional build up moments that just that's just slaps so hard. I know how hard those are because I like writing. So anyway, I'm I stepped on off my soapbox. No, no. Well, Michael, we could spend, I mean, however long saying <laughs> so many good things about this game. But unfortunately, there are other people out there who could spend some time saying some less than stellar things about this game. Oh, because yeah. Yeah. Now- <laughs> Because now it's time for second opinions. Nice opinion. Just one tiny problem with it. Yes. <laughs> I'm excited you're and hosting this one because I, I I didn't I didn't do <coughs> excuse me the homework that I normally do to get this data. So yeah. Well, I'll be honest. Like as much as I talk this up, it was actually very hard to, to find negative or critical reviews of this game. Um. 
the lowest review that I could find on a score, like an aggregated score of one to a hundred was a 70. Um, that I, honestly, and, that's a testament to the game right there. Really? Yeah. And it also means I'm going to have to fake some outrage on this. Like, yeah, <laughs> fuck you and your no, measured criticism. We, we, yeah. We just got to set the bar really high. We just set the bar really high. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this one comes from gamecritics.com. Uh, Really, Mike like Suk. a really well-known like company too. Wow. Yeah. So I'm just going to pull a couple of quotes from towards the end of this review where uh, our boy Mike is summing things up at the end here. It's not even until the end of the game that we're told why the primary task was so important to Kratos' wife, even disregarding the fact that several of the, uh, the eventual answers are unsatisfying sequel hoods hooks it's a bad story structure to yank us around for so long without communicating what it's all for if we're going to screw around on all these arbitrary errands we at least deserve to know why all we have to go on is the dying wish of a character we've never met thanks to the tours detours from this objective god of war is just too damn long it outlives its visual splendor its enemy variety and the time it takes for players to fall into a comfortable groove with the combat Worse yet, it lays the groundwork for fascinating character arts only to settle for a single, underwhelming twist and the promise of a new trilogy. I enjoyed the game, but there's nothing so groundbreaking about it as to justify all the wheel spinning it does. Okay, well, who pissed in this guy's Cheerios, for one? He is mad. (laughs) I don't necessarily think that that's true. I mean, look at the leaps and bounds that people go through to fulfill a will even if it's something as stupid as you know (laughs) moving their cat's ashes and spreading them on the the fucking you know lawn at disney world that's it's stupid like i don't care it's dumb so Mm -hmm. but people do it so if your wife's last your wife's last dying wish is to spread her ashes you know i i just don't think that that's a that's a relative criticism yeah. like it just <laughs> i i feel like it's pretty it's a pretty profound thing and what i like about this is it's not like kratos and atreus are like uprooting their life and something mm-hmm. super important to do this it's like their life and family just collapsed so fulfilling their last wish is what made this so like keeping them together so I think this person clearly missed the point of what was being made here. That's what really made me want to pull this quote out particularly is that this is never a question that I had during the game. Like it felt self-evident why they would want to fill this out for, for um, you know, their wife and mother. And, and Faye's absence throughout the game I think is really profound. She has a huge impact on the, the plot. And she's not really talked about a lot, but you still get a sense of what's missing from their family. Um, you know, to to ask a question like, why would they even want to do this is fucked up and stupid. Like, yeah. And also, like, I mean, think about everything else we said about the world itself and it being empty and things like that. Honestly, if if you're that if you have that much of a problem with the world as it was, you don't have to to do everything like you can finish this mm-hmm. game in 20 30 hours and just be fine did i yeah. spend a lot more time with it than that sure but i did everything so it's like 
I, I just don't I don't like this criticism. I think that it's it's very debased in what it's trying to say. I get if you want to be like, hey, I felt like the game was a little long for me. That's fine. But this review is like tearing the game down for things that it clearly wasn't guilty of. And they it sounds like this is coming from someone that was just trying to. It's like, hey, we got to be critical of this game. Someone, someone had a vendetta that their game didn't get a game of the year. Someone had an axe to grind, yeah. for sure. No pun intended. I almost wanted to say something about it, and I wasn't gonna. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> All right, Michael. So can you... I mean, I, it, okay. Can you guess the critic score and the user score from Metacritic? And I'll... Ooh, baby. I don't know if this is a hint or not, but this is the PlayStation 4 release rather than the P- PC release. I'm trying to get impressions from people, like, right when the game came out. Yeah. Well, if the lowest score was a 70 on the critic, let's say... Let's say 8.9 critic. Mm-hmm. And user score, let's say... Nine pretty close so the critic score here is a 9.4 holy um, shit wow the user score is a 9.1 okay so i was very close on the user score Damn. yeah yeah you were right there <clears throat> i didn't nail them uh, on the first try like you did but you know it's fine <laughs> not bitter at all you, you probably won't be supply, surprised to learn that a lot of the negative reviews from users are people who were, you know, diehard fans of the original God of War games hmm. and, and hated to see the series grow and evolve because why would you want to see that for, for a game series? <laughs> yeah, why would you want things to be better in literally every single way, shape, and form? My bad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Go back to playing Call of Duty, seriously. <laughs> God of War looks like The Last of Us, so it's cucked now. Oh, great. <laughs> Last of Us 2 is better than Last of Us 1. Fuck you. Fight me. That's exactly right. I mean. I just had that conversation again today with somebody. My friend just got a PlayStation 5, and he's like, what game should I play? I told him Last of Us 2, and then I told him it's better than the first one because he'd only played the first one. Mm. So Anyway, that being said, yeah. I I just think that like if if I were to give this game like a good a good solid score it would probably be around the same that they gave. Mm. Obviously we're only going to talk about games that we really liked on this show. Um but I just feel like it was really well rounded. Um and before we like really step off of the game, I really do want to talk about the Valkyrie battles cuz we didn't talk about them at all. Oh yeah. Um that was the first Valkyrie battle was like my all in moment in this game. And the reason I loved them so much was because I didn't feel overly challenged. I felt like everything I was evil. It was really easy for me to pick up all my mistakes and really easy for me to like just overcome whatever was in my way. Or if there was like the obstacle was just so blatant, like I'm a level three fighting a level eight like enemy like i just i'm not gonna be able to do this if i make one mistake i'm gonna die but and mind you it was only revenants i handled all the rest of them fine it took a while and a few deaths but fine the revenants though 
Anyway, <clears throat> um, these battles, so each of the, the Valkyries were like the, the heralders of like the people from the underworld, making sure that the people who died in battle got to go to Valhalla. They shepherded that like, uh, thing that, that they facilitated that process, but they right. were, I guess, captured and stuck in these, uh, corrupted bodies and hidden throughout all of Midgar or all of the realms, I should say. <clears throat> and, um, when you find these things, they are just, they're definitively the toughest battles in the game and they yeah. require you. And this is why I love them so much. Each of them has like a different set of skills and very definitively different set of skills. And they require you to be very precise, to watch your timing and to really learn and use the combat in a very, like I said, precise and deliberate manner. And the, obviously I'm all about that. Like, this is these the first Valkyrie battle that I fought. I probably died 50 times because I went into it with the same mindset of every other Valkyrie. Um, as it turns out, the first Valkyrie battle that I fought is what most people consider to be the hardest one. So I will oh, really? say that that's yeah. And I, <laughs> I looked it up and I was like, why am I struggling with this so hard or so bad? And they're like, well, this is probably one of the hardest ones. Um, <clears throat> so and then. I didn't have as much problem with any of the other ones, but once you find and kill all eight of them and rescue them, then you get to the realm tear dude. Okay. First of all, I was not expecting that. There's like the realm tear that shows up and like normally Kratos like punches through the realm and like reaches through and then gets rejected. And then creatures like slowly climb out of it. Mm -hmm. This one, like Kratos hits it. And as soon as his hand touches it, you just get thrown on the ground by your neck, dragged across the ground and then yeah. thrown, and it's just like this battle just starts, and this was <clears throat> in my opinion, the real main boss of the game. Mm -hmm. Just incredibly difficult, and like I said, it requires you, every Valkyrie had its own move set. This takes every one of those move sets, combines them into one, and forces you to be absolutely perfect on all of your timing and all of your hits, and all of your dodges and all of your parries. And if you don't use any single one of those mechanics in this battle, you will die. <laughs> and it's particularly the one where she like comes up in the air and then lands on you and just kicks your face into the ground. You can get away from it, but you lose half your health. Like if you get caught in that, you lose half your health that even no matter how fast your B finger is. And she'll spam it too, or she'll hit it like three times in a row where you just have to keep like, you feel like you're on your back foot the entire time in that in that fight. It's so good though. Like it was yeah. it was definitively the most challenging battle in the game and like it was it was like one of those Dark Souls moments where I die and I die and I die and it was like every time my the health would go further down. Right. And I finally mastered it and then it was like the same thing as like I wouldn't even have to use a resurrection stone. The time I beat it, I didn't have to use one. And I was like, of course, every other time I needed it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, you know, before we close it out, I wanted to talk about that because it was such a pivotal moment in how I played this game because I, the first one I played had a real challenge with it. And then every one that I came across after that, I just, I just was lavished 
in like yeah. in the game. Like it was the arenas were cool. Like the the su- like the slow build to the elevator because you know you were going down to a, a Valkyrie mm. at that point, <clears throat> and then finding some in the wild and like those different areas, uh, just just really cool, really interesting. They looked awesome with their wings and you know the all the tells that they have definitively like the best bosses the best enemies and just the best fights in the game so on top of the narrative elements and the bosses and things like that with even with their spectacle that they carry there's so much more that the game offers and shout outs and different types of things um that the game has and easter eggs and all that kind of stuff um Mm -hmm. all the way up to the the ending you know I, i don't think we talked about that where if you return home after everything yeah, there's the hey, this is what's coming in the sequel moment where uh, Thor actually shows up at the house. So you don't see his face, you just see his hammer. So, um, and then just a couple other things I wanted to mention was that I don't know if you you knew this, but in your home, if you look around, there are four marks. A couple of them you can only see in photo mode that are in the home and even in the beginning segments of the game. And they, if you have all four marks and combine them together and switch the, the order around depending on how you find them it actually spells out loki oh really so it's kind of like literally ingrained in the first scene of the house so thought that was kind of cool kind of neat as well so like the game the game itself is just i say that just to say it's just, it's holistic it has something for everyone whether you're a treasure hunter whether you're someone who's there for the narrative if you like tough fights like it just it has everything and i can't recommend it enough go play it mm-hmm yeah, <laughs> I, w- I would say that this game has sort of wide-reaching appeal. You know, I was trying to think about, like, who is this game sort of marketed for? Um, and this is one of the few games that I think really earns the title of, like, mature. Where, you know, originally that idea just comes to mind, like, oh, this game's got a ton of blood and guts in it. And it does. And some of those executions are brutal and they're fucking rad. But the themes of, like, you know, what does it mean to be a good parent? You know, how are you supposed to instill good values when you don't feel comfortable with who you are? Um, You know, that's heavy shit for any medium. Um, And to broach it in a video game in a way that feels incredibly personal and and respectful, you know, I, I think is should be experienced by as many people as possible. Yeah, I I agree. I, it accomplished exactly what it was set out to do. Like you said, it, the maturity rating for the game just spans so much further than the content of the game and mm-hmm. ESRB rating. Like it's yeah, it is just a mature game. Like it does everything from a very level-headed holistic perspective and it does not skirt in any category. So, yeah, like just just play it. It's just it's it's great. <laughs> and there's another one coming. And like, I it's funny because whenever the game came out, I know I was talking to you in Discord, and I had mentioned you know charging sixty bucks or fifty bucks for a game that's four years old is feels kind of shitty to me. Yeah. But like, really, like. I'll I'll be the first to say this. I was going to buy it, and someone gifted it to me about eight seconds before I pulled the trigger on Steam. Mm-hmm. So I was like really happy I didn't actually have to pay for the game. <laughs> 
but at the same token, like I really feel this game's still worth 50 bucks. Like I really do. So, and really if nothing else, then it's to giving my money to Santa Monica to keep making games of this quality. I'm going to do it every day. Couldn't agree more. This is a passion project and it feels like it. Like I, I will happily shell out whatever, whatever they're charging for this level of quality. And I want to see where the story goes from here. Yeah. I'm ready. Bring, keep bringing me this mature content. Let's see that fucking Ragnarok. <laughs> but hey, you know what? Maybe you've been listening to us for about two hours now and you've decided we're idiots. In which case, feel free to go ahead and interact with us in the Discord. You can yell at us. You can tell us we're brilliant. I promise you that both of those things will stick with me for the rest of the day. Um, <laughs> if, if you find yourself listening to this content and you really enjoy it, um, please, please consider giving us a good rating on uh, iTunes or wherever you find this podcast. I can't tell you how much that helps us out. Um, Michael and I, this is the last time we're recording before Elden Ring. So <laughs> one, you can finally hear, like, look forward to us shutting up about it for a while. Um, well, at least shutting up about it coming out for a while. Right. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, that's a good. I I am excited for Elden Ring. I I am stoked to have had the opportunity to play this. And I what I appreciate about Max is like Max gives me like the subtle nudges of like, hey, God of War's coming out. Like, I played it. It was really good. You should play because I I really don't know if I would have played God of War. Like. It was one of those things that, like everyone was playing it. So like yeah. just the just the relationship I have with Max is kinda it's it's great because like it if Max recommends something to me, then I'm gonna want to take the time to do that. And I'm doing that with Outer Wilds right now, and I'm doing that with Disco Elysium right now, and both those games I'm having a good experience with. So when if you're here and you're liking these games, you know consider jumping into some of the other things that we're talking about and consider jumping into the discord and talking with us about them. Cause that's what this is about. This is about a, a community of like-minded folk that are just are welcoming us or welcoming to you to, you know, to open the doors to these discussions and how we can get more out of these games that we just can't seem to get enough of. And that's what we're trying to do here. So Come to the Discord and come talk to us. I, I, I'm excited for that. I hope I hope that it happens. Yeah, me too, for sure. These kind of conversations are why I love games like this. And, and I'm looking forward to having more talks like that. For sure. In the meantime, uh, I think that's all we have to say about God of War. Michael, why don't you go ahead and give us the, uh, the classic post-game content sign-off? I don't know what that is. I don't either. Good night, everybody. <laughs>